Good morning. Luke 7, 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven, been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Many of you have probably heard of Brene Brown. She is a sociologist and best-selling author who is especially known for her work on shame. Um, She first became famous several years ago in a TED Talk that went viral. I just looked it up again this week, and it has over 64 million views. Uh, She begins the talk by saying that she first began her research with one simple idea that every human being is hardwired for love and belonging. However, she quickly discovered that the one thing that will completely destroy that sense of love and belonging is, can you guess what? Shame. It's this idea that I'm not worthy of love and belonging. However, she said she discovered a a group of people who had this really vibrant sense of love and belonging in their lives, and she called them the wholehearted. You know what the wholehearted all had in common? They all believed that they are worthy of love and belonging. When I first heard that talk, I thought, man, no wonder this thing went viral, because she just tapped into the mother of all questions. Am I worthy of love and belonging? That is the question. 
but it also immediately raises another question. She said, the wholehearted are people who believe they're worthy. Okay, great, but how can we know? It's not like you can just ask Siri or Alexa, how do I know I'm worthy of love and belonging? And I tried. You know what Siri said? I can't answer that, Eric, but I could look it up on the web if you like. <laughs> we all need to know not only that we are worthy of love and belonging, we need to know why. Every single one of us has something we would point to in our life and say this, this is how I know I'm worthy of love and belonging. And whatever it is, you can't function as a human being without having something like that. But whatever it is, you know how this works. There's always that question mark in our heart. There's always that nagging fear. It's like, well, how do I know I'm really worthy of love and belonging? Because I don't always feel like it. How can I know? How can I know? We're in a series in which we're looking at different questions that Jesus asked. Whenever Jesus asks a question, it's because he wants us to see something, but we don't see it. We're blind to it. The questions of Jesus help us to see. Um, so as we go through these questions, uh, we're, we're looking at two goals in mind. Number one, how is Jesus using this question to do a deeper work in our own heart? But number two, how is Jesus using these questions to help us learn how to have more loving, caring, respectful, spiritual conversations and relationships with others? This morning, the question we're looking at is, do you see this woman? This, the woman in this passage caused a disruption, but her disruptiveness uh, was actually helping us see the answer to the question, how can I know I'm worthy of love? And belonging. Let's look at three aspects of her disruptiveness this morning. We're going to see she shows us a disruptive hospitality, a disruptive grace, and lastly, a disruptive beauty. This woman shows us disruptive hospitality, grace, and beauty. Let's take a look at each one of these. And first, she shows us a disruptive hospitality. In this story, a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to a meal. In, um, in the ancient world, this would have been a shame-honor culture, which means that when someone came into your home as a guest, you would have been expected to show that guest some basic acts of hospitality. And we actually see them in the end of this passage. Uh, Jesus actually calls out Simon for not doing these things. First, Jesus says, you did not give me any water for my feet. When someone came into your home, a good guest was expected to provide water so you could wash your feet. Simon doesn't do this. Second, Jesus says, you did not give me a kiss. Um, depending on who your guest was, you would have been expected either to kiss them on either cheek or to kiss their hand. But Simon doesn't do this either. Finally, Jesus says, you did not put oil on my head. Another basic act of hospitality was to anoint the head of your guest with olive oil. Simon doesn't do any of these things. Now, many scholars say that this would have been a shocking insult to Jesus. Other scholars say, well, it, it was certainly a social failure, but not necessarily a shocking insult. But here's what is shocking. It says, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Now, most every commentator says this woman was probably a prostitute. We're not 100% certain, but probably. But even if she's not, she was publicly known as a sinner. 
in the ancient world, in Jewish community, sinner was a distinct social category and, um, and, and that had a very distinct social meaning in that culture. For instance, in the Gospels, when you see the phrase tax collectors and sinners, they're always grouped together like that because this was a social category. These were people who were not just unwelcome in community. They were rejected from community. This woman was seen as a sinner and only as a sinner. And yet, it says that she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Now, back then, people didn't sit on chairs. They would sit on cushions on the ground at a low table, reclining on the table with their feet stretched out behind them. And so this woman comes up behind Jesus and she starts wetting his feet with her tears. Now, that would have raised some eyebrows, certainly, but what she does next is even more shocking. It says, then she wiped them with her hair, kissing them, and poured perfume on them. In the ancient world, women always wore their hair up. To let down your hair as a woman was something you only did in private and only with your husband. And yet, here's this woman, she's letting down her hair in public. In fact, the rabbis back then taught that uh, for a woman to let down her hair in public, this was something so intimate, so suggestive, and so scandalous that it was actually grounds for divorce. Are you starting to see how shocking what she did is? And keep in mind also that all of this, you know, this didn't just happen in a moment. This would have taken several minutes to transpire have you ever been at a social gathering where somebody does something really cringeworthy? And, and, and it doesn't just stop in a moment. It keeps going so that everybody there is like, no, no, no. You're like, please, let it stop, let it stop, let it stop. And it doesn't? That's what's happening here. This wasn't just a, a socially awkward situation. This was a massive disruption. And yet, in the midst of all of this, what does Jesus do? Does he rebuke her? Does he say, Get away from me, thou sinful woman. No. He publicly praises her. He lifts her up in front of the whole dinner party as a shining example of one of that culture's most prized virtues, hospitality. What is hospitality? Hospitality is a way of welcoming someone into your life with the love and belonging we're all hardwired for. It's not just a social nicety. It's a way of welcoming someone into your life with the love and belonging we're all hardwired for. Friends, here's one of the first things that this is showing us. Jesus is challenging Simon and you and me to welcome people we would be inclined to ignore, to reject, and even to put into a category. When Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? He's, he's saying, you know, the irony here is, well, of course he saw her. It tells us in the passage, when the Pharisee saw this, he totally sees her, but he doesn't really see her. He doesn't see a human being worthy of, of love and belonging. He doesn't see a creature created in the image of God. He doesn't see a person. He sees a category. When Jesus challenges Simon to show this woman hospitality to, 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 and his failure to show him hospitality, he's saying, Simon, not only did you fail to show me hospitality, you should have shown her hospitality. 
You should have welcomed her into your home as a treasured guest. She was ejected from community. But one of the main things Jesus is doing in this passage is Jesus is restoring her to community. Because when he tells her, your sins are forgiven, that wasn't just a message for her. He said that out loud in front of everyone as a way of saying, this woman is welcome here. She is worthy of love and belonging. You know, one of the really scary things about this story is we don't find out how it ended. How did Simon respond to this? How did the, the other people at the dinner party respond? What did they do? Did they welcome her? Did they receive her back into community? We don't know. The story just ends without any resolution. That's on purpose. It's a way of getting you and me to reflect, how am I responding to all of this? Am I willing, am I able to welcome people that I would be inclined to ignore and to reject? Am I willing to welcome people that I would be inclined to feel superior to? Jesus is saying that every human being is worthy of love and belonging because every human being is a person, a creature created in dignity in the image of God. Are there people in your life that um, sometimes it's hard for you to see them as a person? Sometimes you see them more as a category? Our culture is full of this. Our world throughout history is full of this, isn't it? If, if for people who lean right politically, it's easy a lot of times to see people not as persons, but as, you know, that social justice warrior or that um, snowflake or that libtard. Or for people who lean left, often it's easy not to see persons, but to see bigots, transphobes, fundamentalists. Jesus is saying that we need to learn how to welcome people that we would be inclined to ignore, to reject, and to see ourselves as superior to people we would put in a category. How do we do that? How do we learn to really welcome people? And how do we even learn to want to do this? Well, that leads to our next point. Uh, this woman has shown us a disruptive hospitality, but second, she shows us disruptive grace. Jesus wants to transform the way Simon sees this woman. How does he do that? By transforming the way Simon sees himself. Jesus tells a story about two people. One had a little debt. The other person had a big debt. But the moneylender forgives both debts. And Jesus asks a very simple question to Simon. Which of them will love him more? And Simon realizes he's kind of stepped into it here. And he says, well, I suppose <laughs> the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. In other words, Jesus is saying, Simon, you're starting to see. What is it that Jesus wants Simon and you and me to see? Her love her love. Remember, in the parable, the one who has the bigger debt forgiven is the one who's going to love the one who forgave them all the more. Jesus wants us to see her love. That's why he says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Jesus is pointing to her love, but even her love is showing us something bigger and deeper than that. What is her love? Because notice he says, her love has shown. Jesus says her love is showing us something, and that's what he really wants us to see. What is her love showing us? Forgiveness. Jesus says her many sins have been forgiven. And notice he doesn't say sins, many sins. Now listen, we need to be careful here, because if this woman really was a prostitute, then there would have been all kinds of trauma 
and abuse and oppression in her life. Most prostitution back then was a form of human trafficking. This woman was not a little girl who woke up one day and said, when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. No. Whatever is going on in her life, her story is full of pain, grief, hurt, loss, and suffering. We can't just put her into a category. And yet, one of the main things Jesus is showing us here is that, look, every single one of us has things that have happened to you. There are things that have been done to you in this world. And one of the really wonderful gifts of modern society over the last 15, 20 years is that our culture is way more aware of trauma and the effects it has on people. And that's a good thing. There are things that have happened to you, and you are not responsible for those things. We are, however, responsible for the way we respond to those things. When Jesus talks about sin, he's saying that there are things in your life for which you are morally responsible. Ways that you have betrayed God, betrayed others, betrayed yourself. We, we need to see those things. The problem is, in our modern culture, we've gotten rid of the concept of sin. In, in our modern culture, we now live in what's called a therapeutic age. And let me be really clear about something. Good counseling, good therapy is something that is incredibly helpful in our lives. We, we all need help processing the things that have happened to us and the ways that we respond to those things. Good counselors can help you to do that. In fact, we have a lot of really wonderful counselors at this church, and I would encourage all of us to avail ourselves of those kinds of resources. But at a popular level, to live in a therapeutic age means that we no longer see people as sinful, but sick, or traumatized, or oppressed, and that's the only way we see them. And listen, let's be honest. One of the big reasons for this is because religious people have used the word sinner to put people in categories, to oppress people, to demean them, to assault their dignity. And, and, and getting rid of the concept of sin is our culture's way of restoring the dignity of human beings. And yet, if we get rid of the concept of sin, we're actually robbing people of their dignity. Because at the very heart of dignity, the very essence of dignity is that we all have the freedom and the choice and the responsibility to make the choices of our own life. The heart of dignity is we all have choice and agency in this world. So for instance, um, think about how our culture frames the conversation around reproductive rights. It's all about choice. And if you don't have the right to choose, then you have been robbed of dignity. Or think about the way our culture talks about identity. Tara Isabella Burton is a, uh, a writer. She's an expert on American spirituality and culture. She wrote a, a book last year called Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. In this book, she says the idea that we are self-makers is encoded into almost every aspect of Western life. At the core of self-creation lies one vital assumption. What is that assumption? That who we are is who we most want to be. Our honest, authentic selves, she's saying, are the ones we choose. In our culture, if you don't have the freedom to choose and express your own identity, we say, you have been robbed of dignity. But do you see the dilemma here? If, if there is no sin, then 
we're just living out of the trauma and the oppression in our lives. We have no choice in that. But if we have no choice, we have no dignity. Friends, far from erasing dignity, the concept of sin actually restores our dignity because it says that you have the moral responsibility for the choices you make in this life because that's the kind of glorious beings that we are. Friends, this woman's hospitality was disruptive, but even more disruptive than that was this grace that she's a picture of. Our culture loves the idea of grace, We hate the idea of sin, but you can't get the one without the other. They both go together. That's what Jesus is showing us here. You can't have grace without the sin that we need the grace for. Jesus is showing us all that we are way closer to Simon than we might like to think. Even if we give lip service to the idea of grace and forgiveness, in our heart of hearts, we're like, grace and forgiveness. That's for people who really need it. Not like me. I'm better than them. But one of the main things Jesus is doing in this parable is he's showing us there are actually two ways to be lost. Two ways to be a sinner. One way is like this woman, disobey the law, disobey the rules, to be a really immoral person. But the other way to be lost is to be like Simon. It's to be a really good moral person, a virtuous person, and then to think that that God accepts me, God owes me because of that. The great preacher Tim Keller used to call this being middle class in spirit. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. But we cling to our virtue. I'm not like those people. I'm better than them. We're middle class in spirit. But Jesus is saying, you're both lost. Both people need grace. Both the irreligious and the religious. Both the immoral people and the deeply moral people. Both need grace because both are desperately in need of God's redemption in their lives. Whether you're irreligious or religious, immoral or immoral, grace disrupts all of our categories. Because think about it, grace means on the one hand that you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you. You know that's wonderful news if if you're a really bad person. But it's really disruptive news if you think you're a good person. Because think about it, if you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you, then by that logic, by definition, you can never be so good that God is obliged to accept you. Those two things go together. If you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you, then by definition, you can never be so good that God is obliged to accept you. In other words, the basis of God's love for you isn't in you, it's in God. It's not in you. It's in God. Friends, are you seeing the dis- just how disruptive this woman is? Her disruptive hospitality is showing us just how we need to welcome people into our lives we would be inclined to ignore and reject and feel superior to. But even more, the, her grace, the grace she shows us is disruptive to us because it disrupts all of our categories. Are you feeling the disruption? If so, that leads to the last thing we see. This woman shows us a disruptive hospitality. She shows us disruptive grace. But lastly, she shows us a disruptive beauty. You know, the the big question here is, how does this grace come into our life? And what does it do to us? That's where this question that Jesus asks Simon helps us one more time. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? 
you gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since the time I walked in the door. You didn't um, put any oil on my head, but she poured out this perfume on my feet. What's, what's going on there? What is Jesus doing? Remember the question we began with? How do we know we're worthy of love and belonging? We all have something that we would point to and say, this, this is how I know I'm worthy of love and belonging. So for Simon the Pharisee, it would have been his religious performance. He would have said, I'm a good moral person. This is how I know I'm worthy of love and belonging. But what would it have been for this woman? I still vividly remember a sermon I heard Tim Keller preach uh, on this passage uh, all the way back on Super Bowl Sunday 2003. And after church, I went to a Super Bowl party, but none of my church friends or I, you know, we couldn't pay any attention to the Super Bowl. We couldn't stop talking about that sermon. Because Tim Keller pointed out that, remember, she had this alabaster jar of perfume. Here's what this thing was. It was like a little globe or a globular. It would have had a, a long, thin neck with a tiny opening at the top that would let out the, the scent of the perfume, but without the perfume being able to spill out. It was incredibly expensive, ridiculously expensive, and she would have hung it around her neck. Now, think about this. In a hot, arid climate like this, in an age, thousands of years ago, when, you know, they didn't have regular showers, in an age before deodorant, you know, not to be too blunt about it, but can you imagine the smells? And yet here's this woman with something hanging around her neck with a cloud of something so beautiful and fragrant that wherever she walked, it was like this little cloud wafting around with her wherever she went. It would have set her apart and made her desirable. Everyone else rejected her, but her beauty, her desirability, this was the thing she would have pointed to and said, this is how I know I'm worthy of love and belonging. Here's the amazing thing. When she put that perfume on Jesus' feet, it wasn't just a drop or two. The only way to get the perfume out was to break the jar. Think about that. This was the only power she had. The only leverage, the only significance she had in that world was this jar. It wasn't just one of many accessories or habiliments that made her desirable in the world. This was the source of her beauty and her significance in this world. And yet she breaks it and pours it out at Jesus' feet. How could she do that? How could she sacrifice the, the source of her beauty and significance in the world? The only way is because she had found a new beauty and a new significance in Jesus. Friends, remember the whole point of this parable is that the, the greater the debt you've per, been forgiven, the more you're going to love the one who forgave you. Now, if it's not blindingly obvious to you already, the money lender in this parable is God, the one who forgives us. And yet, who's the one that this, this woman loves in this story? It's Jesus. Who's the one that forgives this woman in this story? It's Jesus. Her, the heart of her hospitality was the hospitality she had received from Jesus. The grace that, that, that she's a picture of was the grace that she had received from Jesus. 
But even more than that, the disruptive beauty of what she did was simply a picture or a reflection of the disruptive beauty of what Jesus came to do on the cross. Friends, where are you going to find the ultimate disruptive hospitality you long for? How can you receive the, the grace, the ultimate disruptive grace of forgiveness for all of your moral debts? The only way is to see the disruptive beauty of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Because the more you see what Jesus did for you on the cross, the more it transforms the way you see yourself. You know, no one wept more than Jesus. Now, on the cross, Jesus drenched you with his tears. Jesus' tears were not just over the, all the wretchedness and the sinfulness of this lost and broken world. He also cried tears over the redemption of this lost and, and broken world. And on the cross, Jesus let down his hair and gave himself to you in an act of shocking intimacy. You know, this is the creator of the universe, and yet on the cross, the creator of the universe was stripped naked. There's nothing more scandalous, nothing more offensive, and yet there's also nothing more vulnerable and intimate than that. And on the cross, friends, don't you see, Jesus broke his jar and poured it out at your feet. You know, in the ancient world, feet were considered a symbol of degradation. There, there's no way any host would ever have deigned to wash the feet of, of their guests. That was something the servant did. And yet, here's Jesus, the exalted host of all creation, the, the creator of heaven and earth, and yet he takes the place of the lowliest servant breaking his jar and pouring out all his power, his glory, his beauty, his desirability, his love, pouring it out at your feet. Do you see this woman? Her, her hospitality, grace, and beauty is simply a frame that makes it possible for us to see the hospitality, the grace, and the beauty of Jesus. And the more you see Jesus broken and poured out for you, the more that transforms the way you see yourself. Friends, what's your jar? Every single one of us has something you point to and you say, this is how I know I'm worthy of love and belonging. Whatever it is, can you break that and pour it out at Jesus' feet? Whatever it is, I mean, it's already broken. You do know that, don't you? It can never calm your nagging fear. It can never... Um, uh, silence the, um, the, the, the question mark in your heart. It can never soothe that accusing voice that's always haunting you, always oppressing you, always condemning you. Friends, the more you see Jesus broken and poured out for you, the more you will be able to break your jar and pour it out at his feet because Jesus is your jar. He is the true and new and ultimate source of beauty and significance that your heart needs that you can now look to him and say, this one, Jesus is the way I know I'm worthy of love and belonging. Remember, grace means that on the one hand, you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you. But if that's true, then by definition, you can never be so good that God is obliged to accept you. Because the basis of God's love for you is not in you, it's in Jesus. The more you see him broken and poured out for you, the more that transforms the way you see yourself. And the more the way you see yourself is transformed, 
the more it transforms the way you see everybody else. You no longer see a label or a stereotype or a category. You see persons. You see human beings with dignity for whom Jesus poured out his life. Friends, every single one of us needs the radical welcome of Jesus' love in our life. If you're exploring faith this morning, do you see your wretchedness and your need for grace? We want to look at this woman and and, and lift her up and affirm her, right? She's noble. She's virtuous, isn't she? But do you know what the most wonderful, virtuous thing about this woman is? She would say, if she were here, don't you dare try to rescue me from the wretchedness of my sin and and rescue me um, from um, from my wretchedness because Jesus is the one who rescued me. Don't you dare stand on on my honor my her greatest virtue is the fact that she realizes she has no virtue at all can you be like this woman and allow yourself to be disrupted by grace and if you're a christian will you be the welcome that every human being in this world needs people don't expect christians nowadays to offer them that kind of welcome can you be a disruptive welcome in their life a good disruption a disruption of hospitality, of grace, of beauty in their lives. And for all of us, do you see this woman? Her hospitality, her grace, and her beauty is simply showing us the hospitality, grace, and beauty of Jesus. May we all see Jesus more clearly through her. Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you this morning for your hospitality to us. We praise you for your grace to us. Lord, we don't want to admit that we need it. It disrupts our heart. It it shatters our hearts to think that we're nowhere near as good as we think we are, as we want to be. But Lord, disrupt us with your grace. Disrupt us with the beauty of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I pray that you would transform more and more the way we see ourselves, that we would look at Jesus and know this is how we can know we're worthy of love and belonging. And that because of that, we would be able to turn to the world and welcome people into your love, welcome people into your hospitality, that we would be a disruptive hospitality, grace, and beauty in the lives of others. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.